Welcome everyone to episode number 26 of Users First. I'm Alessio Ferracudi, UX designer, and today our special guest is uh, Caleb Bluesbrook, a very enthusiastic user researcher and product strategist in the San Francisco Bay Area. Today with Caleb we're going to talk about how you can strategically be a researcher. You can be a researcher in many ways, but the way that Caleb today is going to explain it to us is how you can move the needle when presenting your research and give it relevance. He's also going to give us some tips on how researchers should have relationships with product managers that will be beneficial to the final product, as well as some tips for resumes and portfolios for new UXers that want to move into research. Welcome, uh, Caleb. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and, you know, impart whatever wisdom that I may do. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Then I will ask a lot of questions so me and our uh, listeners can learn a lot from you. Are you in San Francisco at the moment? I'm actually not. Uh, similar to you, I've been displaced because of COVID. So um, voluntarily, though, I, my husband and I, we retreated to the mountains and the Sierras, so western part or eastern part of California. Uh, because, you know, San Francisco is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. What, what, what's happening with that? And by the way, beautiful, beautiful in the, in the Sierra. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's like a dream. What's happening with San Francisco? Um, San Francisco is just kind of interesting. There's a lot of people that are, there's a lot of people that are moving. Um, so because of COVID, because of remote work, they're taking the opportunity to kind of live elsewhere. Um, I think a lot of people are being opportunistic about it because it's like, hey, I can work from anywhere right now. Let's, where would I want to work? Um, so that's very interesting. Um, the tech scene is still doing and thriving like pretty well, assuming that your industry is not kind of impacted negatively by COVID. But typical to, you know, San Francisco style, there's a lot of like incubators that are happening right now. There's a lot of people that have like actually left their jobs. Um, to start their own businesses or start their own kind of projects and ideas at incubators. There's like, it's actually been a boon for innovation, I think in the area, because some product managers that have been at Google or Facebook for a really long time are actually taking the opportunity to be like, Hey, you know, now's the time. Let's take it. Let's, let's Mm -hmm. go and do it. Um, Awesome. Lots of yeah. creativity over there. I mean, uh, you're always inspired when you're in San Francisco. If there is a place to be, yeah. you know, if you have a great idea and some fundings, <laughs> or if you just want to work like really, really hard, San Francisco is definitely the, the place to go. Or at least it used to be. Uh, now, I guess the, the demand is, is a bit different after the pandemic. Yeah. yeah, I think COVID put a wrench in that. So like visas, I know, are problematic. Like getting into the, the country was problematic, especially under Trump. Um, but hopefully, you know, it will open up the doors and open up possibilities like, you know, to other people outside of the U S that normally couldn't work. Like I'm excited by the possibilities of remote work and what it might do for innovation. Um, because diversity is a major driver of innovation in general. And sadly, uh, there's not a lot of diversity in tech. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I could see that. I mean, before it was, it was always like, um, this was always a blocker because if you are from another country and you're qualified, then, uh, you know, you're only stuck in your country and you couldn't work anywhere else. But nowadays it's different because you can work remote from anywhere you want. You don't need any more visas. 
Just yeah. maybe you have to pay taxes in a different way, but whatever, it's fine. You don't need a visa. So there is a lot of flexibility right there. So maybe you're right. You know, there, there is going to be innovation about that. And that was the biggest problem about US, you know, like visas and so on. And you have to get there. Uh, yesterday yeah. I was watching uh, Terminal with Tom Hanks. I don't know if you ever watched that movie. I haven't, but I know, I know the premise of it. The guy that got stuck in the terminal, which is based on a true story. But damn it, I can't believe it. <laughs> He went. He went like a year in the airport to, uh, to get to get the visa to US. Just just for a day, he got the visa. Then <laughs> that's like crazy. Just to to visit uh, New York. Uh, yeah. that's so nice though. It makes me, yeah. I, I'm mm-hmm. happy. That's the happiest when I'm an American is when people say like, "Oh, I just want to go see this place," because uh, yeah. America is beautiful. It really is. Like. But there's equally, I mean, amazing, beautiful places throughout the world that likewise, I wish that Americans would go see. Like, it's like, go to Paris, go to go to Italy, go to South Africa, go to Africa in general, go to like the Philippines. Like, there's so many amazing cultures out there. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah, totally agreed. And not not only that about nice case, but also also about um, related to UX jobs. Uh, there is not only U- the the US or Canada for for UX opportunities. There is also um, other uh, European countries uh, such as uh, United Kingdom. Well, it's not European anymore, but uh, but it used yeah. to be. <laughs> there is also uh, what is it? Amsterdam. I've heard there is uh, there is great tech opportunities in Amsterdam. Yeah, South Africa. South Africa has. Has great tech over there. I mean, I always get uh, people messaging me on LinkedIn from South Africa about UX. So this, yeah. this industry is really exploding, and you could be working remotely from anywhere. I mean, what's, yeah, what's like, better than that? Dubai is like growing for hmm. innovation and tech. There's Israel is a hotbed for startups and tech as well. Like it's crazy. Um, and I've been fortunate to kind of like work with like the previous company that I worked at was actually an Israeli company that was based in the US as well. Um, and I've had the opportunity to work with a bunch of Israeli companies that that are doing really interesting things with tech. Um, awesome. Yeah. That's really open-minded, man, when you can work with people from another culture and you can learn, you know, different things and like, especially how tech is growing over there, which is different, you know, how it's growing in the US. Really, yeah. really awesome. It was fascinating to work with that. And I actually got to do a study that took me to Europe. And then I traveled around Europe for a week meeting with clients and like understanding the nuances and differences of like, you know, clients in France versus clients in the UK versus those in Spain, like, and you know, how the individual cultures also weigh into like how they use our product, which was fascinating. Like it was really eye-opening to say, oh yeah, not all users are the same. And a lot of the cultural differences weigh in on those or socioeconomic at least. Fantastic. Yeah, I know you you know a lot about uh, this uh, this kind of uh, sociologic things. <laughs> Sorry, how did, how did you say sociologic? Uh, I can I can say, I can't even pronounce it. Damn it. Uh, so uh, socioeconomic. Socioeconomic. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's uh, my Italian yeah. accent right there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> yeah. No, that that's awesome, man. That's awesome. And I know I know that you also worked uh, lots of years as um as a product manager, right? Before, before becoming, um, what is it? Right now you are a UX, UX researcher, right? Yeah. So now I just do primarily UX research, but also product strategy. And I do freelance work right now. So I do work both contracts and house at companies and also freelance contracts if people need help with UX research. Mm-hmm. 
um, mostly or also some product research, but always tied with UX research. Um, yeah, and I was a product manager for a very long time. So prior to my stint as like right now, I actually was on a sabbatical for, uh, yeah, about a year and a half. My husband and I, we quit our jobs in the Bay Area and said, screw it, traveled the world. Um, we went to 17 different countries plus Antarctica um, and re reignite the creative batteries and stuff like that. Prior to that, I was worth, I was at a company called Kenshu, which is an Israeli-based startup that I kind of mentioned before. Um, and they do in the marketing SaaS platform space. And I was hired as kind of a lead product designer for them. Um, and when I got hired, I noticed that they had no UX research. So I actually built that program and that function at, at Kenshu from the ground up. So helping them to realize the benefits of research. Um, and then prior to that, I was a product manager for eight plus years um, all over different companies in the Bay Area. So anywhere from really small scale um, startups that got acquired by larger firms and then um, agencies to fully just corporate places. But I really like different industries. Um, so one of, the, one of the best places that I worked was um, I worked for a product manager at Virgin America Airlines. So underneath Richard Branson's Virgin brand umbrella, but that was just amazing. Um, really amazing people, amazing brand, amazing company and vision and product and experience. And that's where I kind of like spawned into user experience and research. Um, I you got work, working closely with a, with a user experience team, right? Yeah, so we, it was working really closely with the marketing team that was doing um, virginamerica.com. Uh, and then also some of their web presence and, and the loyalty program. So I got exposed to those things while I was there um, and really had my hands in everything as a product manager. It was nice to like kind of be the glue that stitched everything together between a lot of the different initiatives that we were launching, like launching Mexico, launching Canada, like international destinations or like um, looking at new loyalty program tiers and stuff like that and communication or new systems for communicating to our, our people. Um, that was really fun. And uh, also got exposed to um, boot camps. Like I went to a boot camp at Cooper Design. So Alan Cooper, who's the forefather of um, personas and persona design. So he wrote inmates are running um, the asylum, I believe. And then also he had a lot of really great resources from interaction design. So I took an interaction design practicum alongside one of our UX designers at the time, although they weren't called UX designers, they were called <laughs> yeah. IA uh, people, so information hmm. architects. Uh, and then at, after that, they actually evolved into user experience. Um, but so took that and then I, I was hooked by the bug because while I was a product manager, like I took this course and I was like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that I can do research <laughs> and I can always be right? <laughs> and because at the end of the day, like as a product manager, you really just want to be right. You want to make the, like, I think there's a fallacy of belief in product management that people are kind of like, think they want to be a product manager. Um, because they think it means control and they'll have control over the product. They'll actually be able to steer it the way that they want to. And like, they'll be able to do all this stuff. And what I found in my personal life and my experience, that was not true. <laughs> um, in fact, you were just kind of paid to make decisions, but mitigate 
risk. Like that's the number one thing for a product manager uh, is mitigate risk. And the best way to do that, as I found as a, like, as a product manager was through research. Like teaming up with all the design, like the design team, the engineer, everybody to answer the questions about the product, but also the big questions about the product that could take it off the rails. Like, you know, how do you know that what you're building is gonna be utilized? Um, if you're using web analytics data, that's only going to take you so far. It's a weather vane indicator of what the larger issues are. And UX research, especially qualitative research, can really inform those decisions and take away that risk. And bonus, you're, you're going to be right, <laughs> most likely, <laughs> like because you'll take away all the doubt and you'll have a, a good indication of which way that you should steer the ship. Right, you can really like pick up what you're saying um, and convince everybody without having to make a sales pitch, basically. Yeah, like, I mean, don't take my word for it. Listen to the users. Mm-hmm. Right, like, yeah, it makes absolutely sense. And uh, that's, you know, I feel, I feel, you know, I feel exactly what you're saying. And when, when I happen to explain uh, research to other people that I work with, stakeholders or colleagues, I'm, I'm always very confident of the design that is going to be created because I know what the user wants, I know what the user needs. So um, now that everybody knows, we know what to build. So it, it is yeah. an awesome feeling. It's just, it, it is also very satisfying. Right, I mean, and, and as a product manager, unfortunately, a lot of times I didn't actually get to see people use my product. So, and I think that's the norm. Like I think a lot of product managers they build things, they do things, and they don't get to see the fruits of their labor along with everybody else's labor. Um, and it was really satisfying to me as a product manager to actually do the research myself or get involved in that. And then, you know, typical to my curious self, I just went down the rabbit hole of UX research. And I was like, you know what? When I evaluated like the spectrum of the product lifecycle, you know, I took these really, um, there's a really great book for people who are in the midst of their career at all. Um, that is called Designing Your Life. It's by Mm. these two wonderful guys. Um, They're actually Stanford D School. So they are at the design school at Stanford. Um, They're teachers and they realize that students, um, they don't know how to design a career. Like nobody teaches you how to do that. Um, Mine was kind of happenstance. I just tried to follow my gut of like what I liked and it always led me to the creative side. so I got back to my roots. So long time ago, um, uh, when I went to college, I actually started arts administration. Like, so I would say that I have a very unconventional background for UX research. Um, I'm not like an academic research, although I did a lot, a fair amount of research while I was in college. I don't have a master's degree. I don't have a PhD. Like all of these things that you would see as uniquely UX research, or you even see them in all the job descriptions. Um, which spoiler alert, like I get rejected all the time, like from okay, because I don't have a master's, um, Mm -hmm. Google notoriously wants a master's Facebook also has, uh, you know, they do have that elitist bias, um, that they say that they're trying to address, but we'll see. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. a long time ago, I actually did, uh, arts administration. I did, uh, while, which is the. If, for those of you who don't know, it's the um, learning about how to manage 
not-for-profit organizations. In specific, I was focused in the arts organizations. Um, so symphonies, uh, uh, ballets, uh, orchestras, museums, and theaters, which is actually the one that I concentrated in was theater arts. And within theater arts, I actually studied um, costume design, which in hindsight, it seems like it has nothing to do with my current job, but it, it actually has a lot to do with it because overall, the creative process that you take to take a play from you know manuscript to on stage production is very much the same as you would take a product from conception to shipping it out to your users. Um, the process is very much the same where you research, you ideate, you prototype, and then you build, and then you put it out there. And then you see what happens. Like, so that happens as a costume designer, like, you know, you do, you team up with the drama curg um, to actually do all the research, like on the historical con concept of like Les Mis, let's say, you know, what were all the influencing factors going on because of the, you know, the French Revolution? Like, how did they dress? What were they wearing? What time of year was it? Like, how does that play in to this? And then on top of it, you look at your characters, which in my world are users, but you say, okay, what are my main characters? What are they like? What are their attributes, personalities, behaviors? Like, all of this, and then how does that manifest in the clothes that I design for them? And then you can see it in user research where it's like, okay, now UX design, how do I design an app that better facilitates their goals, their wants, their needs, but also aligns with their behaviors, attitudes, perceptions, like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So It's awesome that you brought this up because a lot of times it happens that people you know, they go to school for something or they get a degree or a master's and then they end up not using it, their potential and maybe just doing um, some some job that doesn't uh, satisfy them. It's it's yeah. uh, it's really, um, it's kind of very interested how you, you, you know, you, you went from doing something very creative that had, in a way, a design thinking. Then you ended up as a project project manager, which is a completely different job, which is very, very business related. And then you went back to uh, the creativity stage, reusing those design, that design thinking that you were uh, taught uh, to work with. And it, it is very interesting, this process, because at the end of the day, I think that everything comes useful. And, uh, you know, like sometimes people say, yeah, I did this, you know, but it's never gonna, gonna come handy anymore. Oh, I, th I think everything comes, comes handy. Um, me too. I did a, for example, like a graphic design, uh, diploma. And I thought in my life, uh, after I finished, after a couple of years, I was like, ah, I'm never going to do this, you know, they're never going to become useful. And then I became a UX designer. I was like, God damn it. I did graphic design. That's a great thing. You know, so every, everything comes useful. Awesome, man. I have yeah. a question. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Working as a as a project manager, uh, working working closely with uh, with other designers and uh, and researchers, and being also a researcher yourself and working with other uh, project managers, uh, what uh, what what did you learn? Uh, what did you learn? And what kind of things? What what did you learn? And how did you? build relationships later on with project managers because now you are more experienced in uh, in working with them what was your relationship after that after you became a ux researcher yeah i think it was really interesting and um specifically my history as a product manager is that what actually got me hired at kenshu they really liked that because it was known and comfortable to them 
they had product managers. They had no UX research team. So like coming on board as a UX researcher was like not there. And even product design, they were like, they knew that they needed help shepherding design from a high level, um, but they didn't know how to do that. So the biggest thing for me when working with product managers is you really just, and really anybody on your team is really understand their world. Like understand how your research is going to impact them. Um, what's the best way to give them that research that it will make them one, not afraid of it, but also act on it. Like at the end of the day, our our job as researchers is not to do research for research sake, but to do research to make action and make change. So for the better, both for the business and for our users. Um, and so having a deep understanding on the product manager side, like what are the goals and objectives that they need to um, drive? What are the success metrics that they're looking at? How can you integrate that research and tie it closely to those success metrics? Or maybe there's another metric that you might be able to give them or a data point that could be equally as fascinating um, or more meaningful to the business and to the users. Um, and then really the best piece of advice that I could give for anybody when working with product managers is knowing that Product managers day in and day out have to make decisions. So they're constantly being looked at to make those decisions and decision fatigue is a thing. Like at the end of the day, coming home from my product management work, my husband would try to ask me like what I wanted for dinner and I could only do Boolean answers of yes or no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I couldn't be asked like, do you want Thai food? Like that was too many options. Like just give me, like whittle it down for me to a yes or no. And that's what, I mean, literally I would be catatonic by the end of the day. I just couldn't function at making decisions by the end of my day. Um, so be aware of that. And the best thing that you can do as a researcher is don't give them research or try not to give them research that opens up too many questions, like too many follow-up questions. Try to whittle down your research to three to five insights, uh, no more than that, that really try to impact change or gives them something that they can say, this is the answer that you need to take. So like, number one, always do your stakeholder interviews. But like, particularly with the stake, uh, like your product manager stakeholders, ask them questions about like, what big question do you need to answer? Like, what is the answer that you need to get out of this? Or you're hoping to get out of this? Like, you can also test their assumptions to say like, is that exactly the answer that you're gonna get or not? Because that at the end of the day, you're just making the research relevant. And that's the best way that you're gonna become best friends with the product manager and the designers is really understanding what they need out of you, um, assessing those needs, and then designing a research plan that effectively answers their needs. Like they're going to be satisfied by the end of your research, you know, not going down the rabbit hole of like, that might be cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly. I know exactly what you mean because me too. When I when I talk to stakeholders and ask them questions, and also other people in uh, in the company that, that I work with, um, I also can I, I can see that you know they're really they're really curious about why I'm asking these questions, why I'm so interested in them, uh, and why I want to know what they want out of this project, and that really builds builds a relationship of trust that yeah. later on comes very, very useful when you do research together and you have to explain some findings to them that, that will build a relationship that of trust. Yeah. And one of the best things that I always ask in my stakeholder interviews is like, 
you know, what has been your experience with UX research before? How did that go? Please tell me about it. But I also ask very direct questions about like, what are you afraid of by me working on this project? Like, you know, at, tell me your fears. Like at the end of the day, this would be the worst paint, like the worst case scenario if this project went awry. Like how would this, what would that look like for you? And that's also helpful because it helps you understand, you know, exactly one, what they're afraid of. And two, how can you make sure that that's not going to happen or you can calm or soothe their fears? Like, you know, yes, they might have fears that they're, they're going to be wrong. Like, and that's okay. But you just kind of coach them through that and how it's like, it's okay because by the end of this, you should have the answers and then you can course correct. Like, it's okay. But now you actually know, you know, like I'm giving you knowledge. That's my goal. Like, so that you can make better decisions and I can make, you know, better decisions and everybody around you can make better decisions. Yeah. You know, how, once, once you do research, you talk to stakeholders and, you know, whatever uh, method of research you, you have conducted, uh, it is, how do you present that the, the research? Like um, you mentioned already, you know, um, you, 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 you kind of take it down to like a three to five uh, key findings that you are going to suggest. Mm-hmm. But how do you present it? And uh, what, what's your what's your sale pitch of research? Let's say, yeah, I want to know that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to present the research, it's like you just, whenever I'm asked to present research, I always ask who is the audience? Who is in the room? Can you give me an idea of who they are? Um, presentation in general should be focused on audience. Like who is the audience who's receiving this message? Because if it's going to be somebody high up, I'm going to tailor that message a little bit differently than somebody who's like an engineer that's in the weeds, right? Those two populations need more information or less information based upon their job function. Like they have, like, give me the recommendations, tell me what we're doing about it versus like engineers are like, okay, Tell me why that was. Give me a little bit more context. Like they're going to be a little bit more testing of the research. So it's always number one, who is in the room. Um, But to make it truly actionable, it's like you should always think about like, here's the insight. Now do the heavy lifting of saying, here's the recommendation. Like you as a researcher should come prepared with that. Like you shouldn't just give them a big open question, ideally, unless your team really responds to more open questions approach versus a more prescriptive approach. And even with the prescriptive approach or prescriptive method, I always tread lightly um, because yes, I can design and yes, I can hand over, you know, beautiful design work as well. But like, I'm not gonna do that if the team doesn't want that. Like if those those designers are gonna be allergic to me doing design work or have an adverse reaction to that, like it's like, just know your audience, Um, like, you know, temper it down, make it actionable to a point where it's leading them in the right direction, but it's not super prescriptive and limits innovation, right? Like UX research should should give people the opportunity. Um, And a lot of times what I'll do is, especially as of late now, I've been doing a lot of evaluative research. Um, I'll pair up with the designer and the product manager both. And I'll do a findings preview with them before I even go to a wider preview audience. I'll show them some of the research if they haven't been involved all along. And I'm constantly checking in with them to say, is this what you need? Is this what you want? Like, 
you know, is this the level of detail that you want or should we make these a little bit further down? You guys know the audience better than I do, especially since I contract and I freelance. Like they know the audience more than I do. So they're my um, interpreter. They're like, they're my proxy to say like, how much should I go into the weeds? How much not? Should, should I go prescriptive or not? Or, hey, designer, do you mind if I take a pass and I can just quickly mock something up? And then is this, you know, I'll plop in my mock-up and then I'll tag them and say, okay, take a look at this and you let me know if I've gone too far and feel free to flip this out with other recommendations that you have. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's being super collaborative, but like always doing your check-ins. Um, and even better if they're always integrated in the, the research itself, because then you always know where your research is at. Mm-hmm. And how I really like I really like that the make it more effective. Yes, uh, super communicative, communicative, agile, uh, knowing exactly uh, what to do without wasting time. What if someone doesn't ah. want something? Uh, then you wasted you wasted a lot of time. Uh, figure it out from from the beginning. Uh, put your foot down, and uh, just make sure that everybody agrees on it. I like it, and then also. Also, the, the, the way that you said, you know, that you get involved uh, a designer and a project manager, I think that's really useful because sometimes uh, sometimes uh, we get involved the wrong people, like you were saying, like, like, like it's not yeah, just about presenting research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even better if you have like a small project team and the engineers all along, because they'll come up with ideas. And a lot of times engineers are really great at that. Like, they're really great at coming up with edge cases or remembering things that got built a while ago that maybe the designer doesn't know or something like that, like edge cases. And, you know, oftentimes as a product manager, I was weighing against the, the engineer to say, I get that that's an edge case, but what data or background do you have to say, like how often that that happens? Like before it takes up mental space, tell me what impact or how big it is. Like, which also helps me as a UX researcher because I'm constantly evaluating things to say like, is there quantitative research that it can back this up? Like, so that I don't even need to know if this is an issue or like the designer doesn't need to go down a rabbit hole of like designing eight different screens. If like those, those happen so infrequently, is there a generic way that we could do it or something that could satisfy for the time being, but then, you know, we could evolve that later. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's that's how you deal with edge cases. Yeah, you you make like um, you cannot have uh, evalu evaluating questions. You ask evaluating questions because in a lot of, in a lot of meetings there is there is lots of edge cases that that come up. Maybe someone comes up with an idea. How do you how do you how do you deal with it? If it's I mean there is a lot of great ideas, but there is also lots of edge cases. How do you how do you deal with those? Yeah, I mean first and foremost, anybody comes up with an idea, you always. Um, positive reinforce like even though it might be a crazy edge case you say okay i see your point that's a good point you know always give them affirmation um don't immediately go but or something like that um i mean that's a communication tactic where it's like you always say yes and um yes that's a good point and let's think about this like or and is there a way that we can do and a little bit more to understand how big of an impact that is or how big of a population that is like, does that happen 1% of the time or 10% or 20% of the time? Because that's going to be very different from a research perspective, as well as a product and a design perspective. Like, you know, like I recently was working on a project and, you know, something came up and it was like, oh, 
I didn't realize that there, there was like a scapegoat to one of the designs where they released this feature um, that was really meant to constrain focus um, and focus on certain things. So they were hiding a lot of features that were typical used to um, the behaviors of these, these populations or the segment. And, but there was a back door. Like if somebody tapped the screen too many times, it would exit out of that and they would have full control again. Hmm. And one of my things was like, as a researcher, I was like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> so there's like a get out of jail free card essentially. And it's like, how many people did that, did that get to? I need to know because if it's 30% of the population or even really 10% of the population, that's a large amount of people that I need to suppress from the research to answer your question on whether or not that, re- that, that was effective. Because you've basically given people a way out of it that would nullify the results. Like the people who saw that would be like, oh no, I just tapped a couple of times and got out of it versus, yeah. And sure, the feature's fine, but it was just a little annoying that I had to tap a little bit to get out of it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like always asking those questions around like, just how much does this influence that factor? Um, and being and keeping your ear open to the fact that, that like, those edge cases might exist or asking that question to your stakeholders and just saying like, are there any weird edge cases that I should know about before I conduct this research that might mm-hmm. impact my goal of understanding how effective this, re- this, this feature is? Mm-hmm. No, I, I really, really like this approach that uh, that you have. That is also an appro- and a general approach that lots of researchers have. It's more, it's not about the what, but it's about the why. Why do you do why? research? Why does this? Fe- why is this feature uh, going to affect the, the business? Um, who is the user? You know, always asking, always asking questions. Who is going to be part of the workshop? Because everything, everything mm-hmm. can be customized. Everything can change, and it is really important. Otherwise, otherwise, you're just gonna do uh, work on work on work. You're always gonna be busy, busy, busy. It's gonna be stressful, and at the end of the day, you didn't get anything out of it. Yeah, and I think that going back to my earlier point, like I think to be really effective as a researcher, what I found particularly effective for me is you bring everybody with you on the journey. Like this is not a journey that you do by yourself. Um, research is best done as a team exercise. Um, and your job is really to guide and facilitate their journey. Like um, you're, you're teaching them <laughs> the way. And ideally like product managers should be able to do research. Designers should be able to do research. It's actually better if they do research because then they'll understand and they'll have an inherent empathy for you and your job. You know, so if you do it right, you help everybody around you, including yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's part of the problem with a lot of like, there is a stigma at at least that I've noticed in some of my interviews in the Bay Area lately with different companies is like, they're really concerned about academic um, people and researchers that come from academia because they have twofold. One, they feel like um, they get married to the research and it's too perfect. You know, like they keep things, they keep the research close to them. They don't invite people in necessarily, or they'll do it just at the beginning. They'll wait until everything's perfect and then like show things. And then there's like a tension that happens because like, you know, it may not be what the research or the product manager wanted or this person wanted or that person. And I think the best way to collaborate or uh, the best way to combat that perception is through 
you know, collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that researchers do is like this idea of perfectionism. They can't move fast. They, academic research is historically very slow <laughs> or I shouldn't say slow. It takes longer time frames. It takes longer, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't even know what researchers research in the university. Lots of the people that usually graduate from uh, from these uh, research programs uh, usually have like internships the last you know couple of years or so, and they they do like constant research uh, for 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 some time. So they're they're probably that's that's their training uh, researching on uh, on long term projects and uh, and do that every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like figuring out and knowing how to move fast. Like, what parts of your research can you be more agile on? Like, what parts should you take time to pre- prepare on? Um, like, and knowing the trade-offs, like, oh, well, I guess you could kind of skirt it here. You don't have to be so pristine and clean cut on your research. Or like, I don't need statistical significance here. Like, that will come later, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you, do you think do you think that um, UX designers can transition to research without having to uh, get any master in uh, research or psychology degree or anything like that? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, I would say that it's, in my personal experience, it depends upon the person. Um, like, and what I mean by that is like, one, are you really great at learning on your own? Um, or do you learn the best in an environment that's structured like more of like an academic institution? Like, me personally, I've, I've, I'm more professionally trained versus academically trained with UX research. Um, but I'm, I do have a high degree of initiative. Like I take classes all the time, like wherever I feel like I'm not, like I'm not knowledgeable, like I'll take a class, I'll read an article or do something to like augment that knowledge. Um, but if you're not that type of person and you just do better with a structured learning environment, then yes, go the academic route. Um, especially with imposter syndrome, like, you know, if it helps you and you're really bad afflicted from imposter syndrome and, you know, you would benefit from that, especially like if you're young in your career, like, great, go back to college. Like, like, you know, (laughs) like it makes more sense to you than me, who's a little bit later in my career. Like, like, I don't want the debt to go back to college and get a master's, even though I know like it's probably going to block me from going and getting a job at Google. Um, but it's like, okay, I, I can f- seriously function on my own. And yeah, the reason that I could probably say that right now is I honestly, I met with a person at my, um, a lovely woman, Kat Marie. So I did a stint at Lyft and she's one of the um, heads of user research at, at Lyft. Um, she manages a group of user researchers. And I asked her because I think she has like, two masters and a PhD and like all this stuff. And I was like, I just want to pick your brain. Like, do I need to go back and get a master's? And this is literally not that long ago. Um, And she's like, honestly, Caleb, she's like, some people would say yes, but I know you and I know your work. And she's like, there is nothing that you can't do that I haven't seen from other people, like with masters. And there's nothing, there's nothing in my time and my career uh, of managing lots of different researchers that would say, yes, the people who go to college for it are better suited. Like, she's like, no, there's no research. There's no data in my arsenal of professional history that says that's conclusive evidence. Like, Mm -hmm. it really just depends upon the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for the answer, man. I mean, that that, that was great. That gives a lot of hope. 
because a lot of people think, yeah, should I go back to school? You know, I want to work at Google one day and so on. But, but you know, there is a lot of companies that you can work for. And uh, if you if you work hard, just like Caleb did, and uh, I'm pretty sure you can, you can manage something out of it. <laughs> yeah, you totally can. Like, there's so much information out there. Like, I, I mean, when I graduated, the internet was, you know, a mere beginning of something. <laughs> like, <laughs> so we didn't have like Coursera's and edX. We didn't have like massive online courses that you could take where it's like, you you have so much educational resources at your tool, um, like at your finger, fingertips and you can totally do it. So like Interna- Interaction Design Foundation is really good. Coursera is really good. Udacity is very good. Like there's all these amazing platforms that are out there that can help you stem that gap. Does it mean that you're going to get a job like at some huge institution that values, you know, degrees over experience? No, not necessarily. But then you honestly have to ask yourself, like, do I really want to work for them? Because they value degrees over experience. Yeah. That's that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think this this thing about uh, working for huge companies is, is just very ego driven. I mean, like at the end of the day, what do you care about working for like like a huge ass company? It's fine working for a normal company that pays you just the same, you know. Yeah, and, it's just and about the name. Like there are benefits. Like if you're going big, you you have especially if they have an established research practice. Like you can actually see what it's like. Like what a UX research org might look like and how it runs and when you have an established practice versus when you don't have an established practice. And I strongly advocate for people to do both. Like, you know, learn about both because then you know more about like, should you work there? Should you not work there? Maybe you want to go mid-size. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. really try to test yourself. And when you design your career, design it around getting a wealth of backgrounds and exposure because like research, the more input you have and the more data that you have, the more likelihood that you're going to make a better decision. Right. Yeah. So yeah. like know the field, get exposure to everything and like mm-hmm. use all mm-hmm. those data points to create your own career. Yeah. That, that's an excellent advice uh, for, for everyone. And especially for beginners that, uh, that are now making this transition or they're new to the UX field. I'm, I'm, I'm new too. I have one year of experience. I'm, I'm not a senior guy. So for me, these 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 tips are awesome, man. Because you know, I'm I'm still experimenting. I'm still trying out new things. I'm still reading books and and uh, and uh, have, getting new courses. So I'm still yeah. experimenting. But eventually, I think I'm I'm, I'm in a one year or so. I'm, I I know I know what I will specialize in. But yeah. uh, but I'm still experimenting, and you know, it's beautiful. It's it's but part of the process. Like, I mean, that's a great point, and it's beautiful to say. Like, do you want to be a specialist or do you want to be a generalist? Like, that's another thing. Like, you know, and certain people will say that you have to specialize in something. I mean, there's there's articles galore out there trying to give people prescriptive advice based upon their own experience. And what I would say is like, you need to, you do you. Like, what's the best thing for you? Like, are you super curious that you actually don't like to specialize in something? Because you don't have the patience. You don't want, you don't want to like go deep into anything. You like knowing a lot about everything like myself, then you can be more of a generalist, but yeah, you can have like a little bit of a T in one area. 
Um, and I think there's something to be said for the generalists, which, you know, I think that it's the under guy, like, like the <laughs> underdog, because like a lot of people don't like, they're like, you have to specialize in something like, is it mobile design? Uh, what type of research you have to be qualitative, which, which kind of qualitative, which, with, which methodology is your, your best what's in your toolkit? Like, and it's like, okay, look, I do these, but honestly, I can give me something, I'll do research and figure out the methodology. And then if I'm not good at that methodology, I'll figure it out. Like I can learn. That's my super skill. I'm a learner. Like, <laughs> like awesome, I will man. learn anything. Knitting, sourdough bread baking, redoing bathrooms. Yeah, redoing or, bathrooms, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or contextual inquiry in the best way to ask things. Or max diff on a survey. Like, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> and I feel uh, in San Francisco, lots of people are like that, um, that are very uh, generalist. There is many uh, digital product designers over there. So th this is this is not a big issue over there of specializing in something, I guess. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I still think there's a lot of people who hmm. want you to specialize. Um, oh, I think okay. if you're a, a startup, they will want more of a unicorn, like generalist, because they're mm -hmm. trying to get like, somebody who can do everything, which is a fallacy. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I think, I think that's probably where that perception might be. It's interesting that you have it because I, I, I think that there's like equally like, they're like, oh no, you have to have like this kind of background or you, you need to specialize in Android app or something like that. Like they, they go, they tend to get a little bit deep into stuff. Definitely. Um, well, there is a which, lot of competition there. They, they, they can definitely do it companies, you know, there's going to be yeah. like a, 10,000 yeah. designers down the line. Yeah. I love getting this um, international experience. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you like, can see like, my... <laughs> this is what Bay Area like reminds me of. Yeah, like yeah. my stereotypes on the, on the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah. So I've, mean, I've talked to, so, to some other people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's definitely sunny. You know, like what my, my stereotype of San Francisco is, is like, uh, like a really nice, really nice restaurants, nightlife, working out on the beach and really nice walks kind of everywhere. That's my stereotype of San Francisco. Some of those are correct and some of those are not. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, one of those is definitely more San Diego, LA. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, maybe I got the wrong conception there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm better off in Italy anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would love to be in Italy. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not so bad right now, uh, to be honest. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I don't know about where you are, but here we can still go out, meet friends, go to restaurants. There is still a life that we can have. It's lessening. So uh, they're lessening shelter in place in California. Yeah. Only recently, but we've done a really good job. But shelter in place did its job. Like we did it right after Christmas or right before Christmas. They put it in place, and then they just lifted it. I think in February. Like at the beginning of February. And now people are starting to go out. Um, nice. But it's Finally. not super normal. Yeah, um, no, it feels weird, man. It feels weird. And I, I really feel bad about these uh, poor businesses, you know, that restaurants and yeah. flower shops, they're getting killed, man. They're getting killed. I mean, those are, the, those are the things that make interesting, like, communities interesting. Those are the lifeblood of communities, which is really sad to me. Um, so yes, try to support local business and frequent them as much as possible because you need them. Um, yeah, like yeah. these big businesses like Amazon and whatnot, like, yeah, they're great, but they're going to be fine. But like the mom and pop shops that can actually give you character and service and all this other stuff, like 
that just can't be re replicated at, at those larger institutions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. I, I completely agree with you. As a matter of fact, I buy everything uh, organic from the farms nearby. I don't buy any more from the big grocery awesome. stores. I get everything from the farm. I get chickens. I get I get them all. I get chicken, wine, uh, olive oil. You know, I get fruit, vegetables. I, I eat a lot yeah. of fruits and veggies, so I get I get like plenty yeah. from the farm. It just goes from the farm. That's and, the dream. Yeah. Like I yeah. want to be able to like go shopping in my backyard. Like mm -hmm. I love super organic, man. Super organic. US. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 a good way to support local businesses if you have the opportunity. There is even some places that they have, you know, like a like a local local store that gets supplies of uh, fruits and veggies from all the all the local farms. Yeah, yeah. So there is there is also things like that. I'm sure in San Francisco is full. Oh yeah, yeah. Like we that. have community supported agriculture. So like that's what we call it in the U.S. Um, you'd have CSA boxes. So I grew up in cornfields around farmers. But the funny thing is, it's like all the farms around us, it really wasn't like that. Like all the farms that we had, they grew corn or soybeans for like large production. Not like in California where you have, you know, strawberry fields and blueberries and like you have like all the mix of like all of the plants and families and foods around you where it's like much easier to do. Yeah. Um, so even, you know, corn fed. And, and probably and probably the land where you where you grew up was also um, affected by because you were, you mentioned that they were making things in in in, in large in large quantities. So yeah. they were probably spraying chemicals all over the place. So Oh, totally. Yes. The ground, the the yeah, the, the ground is uh, is affected by that. Um, yeah, oh yeah, I mean it's mass it's mass production. Like yeah. my dad, um, specifically, he worked in agriculture, and he was in charge of spraying the chemicals on all the different farms, like making sure that the right chemicals, fertilizers, etc., pesticides got on the right crops at the right time during the year, like all of that stuff. Yeah, um, that's what it is, man. Here, organic. Organic was like, why would you ever do that? That's super yeah. inefficient. It, like, well, it is. Well, I mean, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, things grow a lot faster if you if you spray chemicals on it. But but yeah. I know that in the long run, like seven to ten years after yeah. that, you've been doing this, then then eventually your um your um, how do you call it your the ground the ground uh, will be desert. Yeah, I've heard of crazy. this. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You, you, I don't know. Have you, have you seen this happening in your area? Um, they'll, no. they'll become like a dry. Well, it is very dry, but it's also like, well, California suffers from, it's not an incredibly wet place to begin with. So they are actually suffering from groundwater tables and tapping into those for way too long. Um, so they've been depleting the water sources, the natural water sources that just happen, like the aquifers underground. And where I grew up in Indiana, we had that, but not so much. The biggest thing is like you do rotational cropping. So it's like what the corn strips out all of the nutrients from the soil. So you have to, the following year after planting corn, you have to plant soybeans. And a lot of that is because soybeans are high in nitrate or, um, isn't that right? Nitrogen are high in nitrogen. And so they can like rebring in minerals to, to the ground. But that being said, it's mostly just whatever minerals are found in those particular things. Like if you have calcium or iron and magnesium or some stuff like that, that can get into your produce, that isn't as easily as kind of put on 
And that's also why they use a lot of fertilizers because they strip those out in order to put those back in um, to the soil or at least give them to the plants as they need them. But like, also like the crazy UX that they're doing with that is like nuts. Like my dad did most of that. I remember doing hand soil. Like I would drive the truck when I couldn't even see over (laughs) the steering wheel. And he was taking, like driving him through a cornfield so that he could take (laughs) potting samples, like soil samples. Hmm. Um, and then send them off to a lab to understand like what's missing in the soil. Um, but now that's all robot driven. So they literally have satellites that communicate to the farm um, systems that drive down the fields and they will dynamically change the fertilizer based upon the content of the soil within like a couple square feet. Like, so it will constantly be changing the the formula um, as it's like driving along all driven by satellites that are like telling it how to drive it's crazy yeah so and how are people affected by these like if there is a robot someone is out of job totally so like that's another issue so like in the midwest and especially where you have like these predominantly blue collar places it's like it's, it's a struggle and automation is going to make it even worse. Like, I don't think that they really understand my, my dad, luckily he's retired, but he's like, oh yeah, they're all going to be like the majority of those jobs are going away. It's like, a shame. It is. Hmm. And I mean, luckily there are certain fruits and vegetables that can't easily be plucked by robots or done anything like that. <laughs> so those manual jobs are there, but you know, people will need to figure out how to be resilient and learn like, yeah. Learning yeah. is going to be, I feel like, the number one skill for people going forward because job automation is going to happen. And you're going to naturally either evolve and learn something new or you're not. And you're going to be left behind. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah uh, I've heard of this topic already. And like some time ago, I was doing some, some, uh, some uh, research, uh, you know, uh, for as a hobby, you know, like just online yeah. and stuff like that and i was reading and i was reading uh that a lot of people don't want any um automation also uh in uh in industries like um you know where there is like uh production lines and so on because yeah. they don't want to be out of jobs you know like uh those industries where they make cars and, and so on yeah it's the same but, thing I mean, look at detroit i mean that's why a lot of these companies yes they're being you know taken abroad but Think about it. Like COVID has also impacted just people's ability to get those things in inside, right? Like we're like major supply concerns getting anything from China during COVID. Well, as pandemics become more prevalent because we have a global travel and economy, like what's going to happen? We might have more pandemics. We might have constrained supply. The best way to do that or satisfy that is probably to bring those factory jobs back actually over here, but the workers are going to be robots. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. instead, a better job might be a mechanic, like who specializes in robots and knows how robots work or mechanical engineering or something like that, that actually fixes things, right? It's just going to be, instead of like building that one part of that car wall or that car door, you're now going to be moving in and like actually working on the machines themselves. Yeah, yeah. The, I want I want to t- add on top of that um, that there is a, there is a way that you know if you don't agree with this methodology of uh, machine learning behind agro- agriculture, 
uh, and robots and so on. Which, uh, by the way, is, is really scary just to think about. It's like a Terminator yeah. movie. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you can just you know shop local, uh, small shops. Uh, yeah. Some time ago, I was I was uh, last year I was living in Glasgow and I was and I was shopping at a small uh, Polish local local shop. They were getting things yeah. from outside Glasgow, you know, from foreign farms and so on, uh, eggs. And they used to import things from from Poland. Uh, and, you know, like it's fine. You're supporting like uh, mom mom and uh, pop shops, yeah. right? It's it, it is that is fine. Or otherwise, another thing that you can do, you can you can Google farms near you or whatever and you can find a farm near your house and just go with your car and uh grab a bunch of things yeah. and make everybody happy you know yeah you'll feel a lot better man when you leave money to a farmer you'll feel yeah. so much better man when you just do the the, the, the usual uh, thing uh, that you go to the cashier at the grocery store and you leave them the money yeah it's not the same it's not the same well and you know the people who are doing it you have a closer connection to your food which i feel like a lot of people don't like it's like you if you if you shop like at big box stores like you don't know where that's coming from like and supply chains are not well managed but if you can shop local one you're reducing the overall carbon footprint that you have in the food industry and like your food in general but like you're also like helping your the people around you like the people who go to school with your kids like you know, that's... Yeah, yeah. You're helping everyone. You're, you're stopping that kind of robot system. You're helping uh, the local people to grow their business. Yeah. Yeah, that's beneficial but for everyone. Close <laughs> economies, which are, like, awesome um, from yeah. a sustainability perspective. Like, sustainability design is, like, super interesting, too. Like, it's, it's really cool. Awesome, man. I want to wrap up with a couple of uh, questions because I know you have to go. I just want to... I wanted to ask you something about curriculums. Um, let's say that I'm someone interested in uh, becoming a researcher and uh, I, you know, I will look for a researcher position. What would you show in your portfolio? To me, if you're really interested in, in doing research, make sure that you're very clear that you're interested in doing research. So like tailor your resume to research itself. Um, and if you do both UX design and research, but you're really just focusing on user research jobs, then make sure that you you index more on user research than you do with UX design. Um, If not, just get rid of the UX design part because otherwise the people who are looking at your resume, if I'm a UX researcher, might get confused, might not understand where your allegiances lie or like where your interests lie. Like, is it research or is it UX research or UX design? So just be very clear and intentional about that. Um, the other thing as it comes, like if you're early in your career versus later in your career, there are certain things that I would look for differently. So like if you're just transitioning, you know, try to focus on some of the, the low, lower things um, that a lot of like research assistants or things that, um, that they might do or like a research associate. So like that research associates usually work a lot in logistics. So operations, making sure that people get scheduled on time and place, like what did you help to really facilitate that? So like, um, especially with recruitment. So the more that experience that you have, or you can talk about the way that you recruited the users would be great. Um, Talk about the methodologies that you used. Like that's usually very high importance. Like what methodology did you use and why? So explain to me, not necessarily 
yes, your process, but really explain to me, like, why did you pick that methodology? Um, why was that important? How does that marry up to your overall goals and projects and problems that you discovered? Um, and then, you know, why did you use that specific one? Like, um, so for me, those are the, the kind of the things that I'm looking for, but like advice to anybody who's doing it, just be very strategic. Like if you think that you're going after research associate roles or junior roles, like focus on like predominantly it's like usability um, or evaluative research methods and try to show a good mixture, both of evaluative and, and qualitative. But most oftentimes I find, at least in my career, that some of the qualitative stuff is usually done by more senior people. Um, and so they're, they're kind of focused in that realm. Um, okay, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, very nice, uh, Khaled. Thank you so much for that. I have one more question and then I promise you can go. <laughs> oh, no worries. I enjoy you. your time together. This has been yeah, fun. No, thanks a lot, man, for, for, for your help, you know, and uh, your, your directions. I mean, it's extremely helpful. One last thing. I know that you're a very up-to-date person and you're extremely futuristic. What is your vision for UX? Do you think, this is a very leading question, I know. Don't judge me for that. Do you think UX is going to be oversaturated in the next couple of years or so? Um, I think that we're, well, at least in the Bay Area, what I can say is like, it already is kind of oversaturated and it's starting to evolve in the Bay Area in the form of product design. So you start to see more of a, like a faction where there's UXers, but then there's product designers. And at least in the Bay Area, they'll allude to them being very different. Um, Product design is really focused more around the actual product aspects. So you'll see more of a marrying of product management. It's actually like UX design teamed up with product manager and had a baby. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that's like the product designer. That's the way that I kind of explain it um, to people if they're unaware. Um, (laughs) So you kind of see that. Like, I think it's like ever evolving. I think there's always a, a propensity for designers and people in our field to what's the newest thing? What's the newest title? How is this different to further distinguish myself? Um, But at the end of the day, I feel like empathy as far as the future is concerned, and you already see this kind of rippling out from San Francisco to other places, like UX was not even a thing 10 years ago or was very nascent 10 years ago, I should say. And now it's everywhere. Like everybody knows about UX. Like usually if you use that term and they know about it. Sure, there's other industries that are kind of getting on board, like pharma or more traditional like health services and stuff like that. Um, But I think that will kind of grow. As far as future proofing for UX researchers, what I would advise is, you know, back to our conversation on automation, there are certain things that will not be automated. Um, Empathy is going to be very hard to um, automate. And if you think about it from a qualitative perspective, like versus quantitative UX research, Quantitative UX research will most likely be automated in the future because queries will be built, they will be run. Uh, Machine learning might be able to pull out different groups, demographics, and how they function and work together. So like persona design might be something that could be kind of fairly well automated, or at least it might be like, here's your four personas that we found in our data set. Now it's up to the qualitative researcher to go dig in have conversations with those people, understand what makes them tick, and then fully flesh out their persona. So like if I was to give 
give advice to your listeners or people who are UX researchers, like definitely understand the qualitative side of the house because that is going to be better in the future and not easily replicated by a robot. Beautiful. No, awesome insights, man. Uh, I mean, thank you so much for for taking the time yeah, to do these. You. you know, thank and, you for uh, all the questions, and thank you for giving me time, space, and yeah, just to think. Thank you, man. Thank you. Okay, I wish you a very good day, and uh, see you at the next episode. You too, Alessio. I'm Bye. looking forward. To have fun. Yeah.